Alrighty. Well, let's open with a word of prayer. And Father, we uh, thank you that we have this time today to come together to worship you. Um, as that lost song sang, that we bring glory to your name. And I just pray now you'd give us wisdom, understanding, help us to hear your truths and apply those truths to our lives. As we look at uh, the parable of the moneylender, and specifically look at the woman who was a sinner. And just pray that you give us wisdom in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 7, verse 36. And I'll just read 36 through 38 real quick. And it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, him being Jesus. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And actually, let's just continue reading. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my, wet my feet with her, her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So we're going to have to take a look at this in two parts. So this is going to be the first part, and next month we'll look at the next part. And we can easily do this because we're going to distinguish the two parts between two different characters. The characters in the story are Jesus, who is invited by the Pharisee, who is Simon, and then you have the woman who is a sinner. Today we're going to be looking at the woman who is a sinner. That is going to be the focus for today, but we must not be disillusioned to thinking that the passage is specifically about the sinner or the woman, because really, in reality, Jesus is there because of the Pharisee, and he's ultimately witnessing to the Pharisee. And even the parable that's talked about is pointed and directed at Simon, who is the Pharisee. So, the heart of this passage is going to be about Simon the Pharisee. But we can get learn a lot from this woman. 
And so we're going to be taking a look at her. So the first point we need to do, uh, look at today is the work of the Savior. This is Jesus, who is the Son of God. Now, at this point in time, he would have been traveling in Galilee. So this is probably where this took place, somewhere in Galilee. The exact location of where the Pharisee lived is unknown. And we see from the first part of this verse in Matthew seven thirty six that he was invited by the Pharisee, and then he is reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house. This reclining was customary for the time, and so if you see in the picture, this is an idea of somewhat of what it would have looked like, the idea of them reclining on their elbow with their feet out away from the table. Um, again, this was customary, but when you think about the times, right, the roads were dirty. People's feet weren't necessarily pleasant to look at, right? And so you would also want their feet as far away from the table as possible. And if you're leaning on your side, right, you're going to want your feet out away from the table. So that's how Jesus would have been. At the time, this was sanitary and it was comfortable, right? It was an easy way to sit and have a meal. Relatively, I guess, comfortable. And these dinners that Jesus is is invited to, this dinner in particular and the dinners at the time, they were actually public affairs. People would invite someone like Jesus, right, who was being called a great prophet, right? He wants to know, who is Jesus? Why are people calling him this great prophet? And so they would invite him for dinner, and other people were welcome to and encouraged to come to these dinners. They wouldn't sit at the table, but they would come in and they would sit along the sides of the wall, which explains how the woman gets to Jesus in the first place. So he was at Simon's reclining, and he was ultimately doing this because he was witnessing. When you think about the heart of this passage... It is Jesus witnessing to Simon, who is a sinner. See, Jesus came to seek and save the lost, as he says. And in this case, Simon is the one who was lost and is in need of a savior. So that brings us to Simon, who is the Pharisee. This Simon shouldn't be confused with a lot of other Simons in scriptures. There's Simon the leper, who we'll look at in a second. There's Simon Peter, right? A lot of different Simons in Scripture. This is Simon the Pharisee. Simon was a common name back in the day, in his day. So, there's a lot of Simons in Scripture. So, he was a Pharisee, but he was also malicious, There's two ways to look at this. You could say, well, he came and he was just inviting Jesus to see what Jesus had to say, right? Innocently. Or you could look at it and say, well, he invited him to use what he says against him. And actually, that's the way we should look at it. If you look in Luke, there's two other times Jesus meets at a Pharisee's house in chapters 11 and chapter 14. And in both cases, actually all three cases, as we will see, the Pharisees invite him specifically so that they can gather information to use against him. If you went to 11, 53 through 54, um, that is Luke 11, 
53 through 54. It says this, As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the end of the chapter 14, after the last time he meets at a Pharisee's house, it says they were watching him carefully. And the idea is watching him carefully to see if he will make a mistake, to see if they can use something against him. And as I said, we'll look at Simon a lot more in part two, and we will see how he has the same approach as these other Pharisees. And you might ask, well, that seems kind of unfair. Why is it that they would be looking for that? If you went back to Luke 5, 20 through 21, we read, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. This is this when Jesus hears, heals the paralytic man. And what do they say? And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? So they acknowledge, look, Jesus here is saying he can do only what God can do. That's blasphemous, right? So they had decided in their mind, we need to get this guy. We can't have him out there proclaiming these blasphemies. And actually, at the end of this account in Luke, they say the same exact thing. Um, in Luke 7... 49, who is this who even forgives sins, right? That same concept, that same idea. Who does this guy think he is to forgive sins? So they already had their idea about who Jesus was and what they needed to do. They were just gathering evidence against him, which is interesting because Jesus is witnessing to them, witnessing to the very people who are trying to destroy him. So that leaves us to look at the last character here in this passage, the woman who was a sinner. We must be clear, there's a lot of confusion between her and Mary, the sister of Martha. This is not Mary, the sister of Martha. If you went to Matthew 26, 6 through 13, or Mark 14, we can turn there. Go to Mark 14 real quick, 3 through 9. And you will see there's, your header might say, Jesus anointed at Bethany. And there's the story of Mary, the sister of Martha, who anoints Jesus in the three other accounts, the gospel accounts. And although there is a lot of similarities between the two passages, these are two different scenarios that take place at two different times. First of all, the woman in Luke, as we will look, isn't named. She is just called the woman who was a sinner. In, I believe it's um, Matthew or John, we see that the woman in this Mark passage is Mary, the sister of Martha. And there's a lot of similarities. That's why they get confused with each other, because both of them take place at a house of Simon. This one, the Mary the sister Martha, goes to Simon the leper's house. The woman goes to Simon the Pharisee's house. And both of them anoint Jesus with an expensive ointment or oil. But that's pretty much where the similarities stop. So there's no reason for us to connect those two different passages and say, oh, they're the same 
scenario just played out in different Gospels. So just look at that passage in Mark and say to yourself, it's not the same. (laughs) The thing is, she was known to be a sinner, this woman, going back to our passage in Luke. It says, and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. Because of this, her sins seemed to be more public to people, that she was known to be a sinner. That's what Simon points to, right? After she um, wets his hair and puts the perfume on, he says, she is a sinner. Why is he letting her do this to him? And so people generally think that she would have been a prostitute or something like that. It is highly likely. And those words, and behold, in verse 37, this is drawing special attention to putting emphasis on what is about to happen. And behold, a woman who was a sinner. You have to think, this is a strange thing. Here you have Jesus, you have these Pharisees, the Pharisee, an elite leader, religious leader, right? He would not have liked her being there. To her, right? She's a sinner, unclean. He doesn't want her in his house, let alone touching him like Jesus is letting her do to him. So, you would say, well, how did she get into the house to begin with then? Well, that's where... People were invited. She used the crowd to her advantage. And if it took place at night, right? They had little candles, but it would have been fairly dark. She could have snuck in fairly easily. Sinners, we have to realize, that word sinner in Bible times was a serious word. A word used for despised people in society, right? You're a sinner. We don't want you around us. And you see that a lot throughout the Gospels, especially Pharisees saying it about people, right? Uh, Matthew 9, 10-13 is another one where it's the t- Jesus is going to the tax collector, right? And calls him, and he, the Pharisees say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, right? Why is he eating with those despised people in society. We don't align ourselves with them. When you think about the woman, though, and this passage, people like to say she's a prostitute because that's likely, but really her sins aren't the concern in this passage, right? Her sins are forgiven. That is the point. In this passage, we're focused on her attitude Because she is forgiven. I like what one commentator says. Whatever she was, she was no longer. Just before this is Matthew 11. Where Jesus says, Come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Uh, That is Matthew 11. Uh, 9, 10 through 13. And so maybe she heard those words from Jesus. Um, We don't actually have to turn there. Uh, Maybe she heard those words from Jesus 
and accepted him as her savior. And she says, yes, he is king. He is Lord of all. However it happened, whatever Jesus said, she heard, right? And she responded to that. She is a child of God now. And the point is she wants to show her gratitude to her savior. So she brings an alabaster alabaster flask of ointment. And this usually housed more expensive perfume. At the time, it was customary to invite someone to your head. This is what Simon the Pharisee was supposed to do, right? Someone would come to your house and you would anoint their head with olive oil. Olive oil was cheaper. um, And that was just the thing they did. And she decides to anoint his head with an expensive perfume, which we'll get into. So we have the response of the forgiven. In this case, it is her. Looking at verses 37 to 38. Let's just read those again. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that she was reclining at the table, uh, when he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now this is pretty interesting. The first thing we're going to see about this woman is she was humble, very humble. She is washing his feet, right? But first of all, she's standing there at his feet. And that's kind of interesting because likely she wanted to, her plan initially was probably to anoint his head with oil. But you think about how Jesus is laying, reclining, right? His feet would have been pointed towards her. So she's probably standing there wondering, how am I going to get to Jesus' head? So she's standing there, wondering this, and in the process, she begins to weep. And so she wets, so much that she wets his feet. This word wet literally means to rain. If you go to Matthew 5, 45, um, at the end of that, right? And sends rain on the just and the unjust. The word is the same here. Just showing the extreme way she was crying, right? She wasn't just weeping a little bit. There was literally rain falling from her eyes, literally wetting his feet. And when we think about Jesus, we think about him being perfectly clean all the time. Right? You have that stereotypical idea of Jesus that is very Western in our mind. But Jesus wasn't always clean, just like the rest of them, right? He had muddy feet. Uh, and you can say, <laughs> it would have looked something like that, right? His feet would not have been clean. They would have been extremely muddy. Washing feet wasn't wasn't pleasant, as I said, right? They wore sandals. The roads were dirty. They were just mud and dust. All of that would have gotten into your feet. And so she's washing his feet. That's what she begins to do after they're wet. And this was reserved for the lowliest of low slaves. Only they would wash the feet, right? If you were a religious elite leader like the Pharisee, you wouldn't do that. You would have your slave do it, the lowliest of slaves to wash the feet. And that is why when you think about certain 
times in Scripture, John the Baptist, right? The Son of God, whose feet or whose sandals I am not fit to unstrap. That is why he is putting himself in the lowest position. I'm not even. I'm lower than the lowest possible slave, unworthy to even do anything with Jesus's feet. They would have understood. Oh, look how low he's putting himself. And that's why Simon Peter, right? I'm not going to have you wash my feet, Lord. <laughs> that's why he understood. This is for the lowliest of low. But she happily does it. She washes his feet. Even though it would have been degrading. And it's likely, probably, that Simon the Pharisee didn't wash his feet. And she probably took notice of this. And she says, okay, well, while I'm here not saying that just quite like that, right? But she says, oh, his feet aren't washed. I will wash them. And she does it with her tears, and she does it also with her hair. And it would have been indecent at time to let down your hair like that as a woman, but she didn't care, right? She was washing her Savior's feet. It is through this humility that we see She knows she is forgiven, and she also knows who the forgiver is. The last thing is she was very, uh, well, it's not the last thing. She was loving. She ends up kissing his feet. That's how much. So first she's humble. We see her washing the feet, and then she's kissing them. And this is an intense word to express intense affection for someone. The same word is used in the story of the prodigal son, right? When at the very end, the father runs to the son, he embraces him, he hugs him, and then he kisses him. It's that same word. And so it's an intense expression of love for someone. Don't think about it as physical attraction, right? She is showing love for her Savior, Her many sins, right? That's what Jesus even says. She has many sins, and those are all forgiven. And therefore, she loves much. And she is displaying that love. And the last thing in this point is she was honoring. She uses perfume, and this perfume was costly. If we went back to the story of Mary and Martha, it says she pretty much had the same exact thing. An expensive perfume, an alabaster flask. And in that story, the Pharisees point out that it is worth 300 denarii and what she could do with it, right? She could feed the poor. And this 300 denarii was about a year's wage for a common laborer. So this is very expensive perfume. Just think about spending your whole entire year's wage on a bottle of perfume and then putting that on Jesus' feet. You must think very highly of him to do so. So she was honoring Jesus for what he had done for her. Forgiving her sins, as he says in 47. And so, due to time, again, we will be looking at the parable more specifically and also Simon the Pharisee and his response and how Jesus responds to him in the next part. But let's just look at 47 and 50 now to get the last little piece of how Jesus interacts with the woman. 
It says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And so, first of all, she was a child of God. We're seeing the affirmation of Christ for her. So, she was a child of God, right? Her sins are forgiven. The forgiven is a perfect tense verb showing um, action in the past that is continuing in the present. Her sins were and are forgiven. Again, forgiven is the past tense. This is before she came in. What Jesus, what she did for Jesus didn't save her from her sins. We need to make sure we're clear on that. We know from looking at scripture, no one is saved through works, right? It is through faith apart from the law, as it says in Romans. She was saved before going to her, to Jesus. This was just an expression of the love that flowed from her faith. And Jesus clarifies this for us, luckily, in verse 50, saying, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It is her faith. And how wonderful, sweet, and reassuring are the words from Jesus here to her. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And the thing is, he's talking to her, but he's also talking to everyone else at the same time. Not only does she know, she's clarified, reassured, affirmed that she is a child of God, her sins are forgiven, but everyone else in the room who knew she was a sinner now knows that she, her sins are forgiven. And so they don't have to treat her like a sinner anymore. They can treat her as a child of God. But the thing is, just like her, we can have forgiveness, right? Romans 10.13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved, or you will be saved. And do we... Hopefully, all of us here acknowledge the grace of God, the forgiveness that we can have by calling on his name. That's why we're here today, right? To celebrate the sacrifice that Christ paid for us. So she was a child of God, and she overflowed um, with love for God, for she loved much, right? One of the characteristics of being a child of God is you love, right? You love much. When we realize the extent of love placed on us, we should in turn love others. Though we do not see Jesus physically as she did, we should still love. We see this in 1 Peter 4, 7. Um, Thank you. Um, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Right? That joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That word inexpressible is literally higher than speech. That's what it means. It is the joy of loving the Lord, right? 
It is beyond even words. We can't begin to express it. And the last thing is she had the peace of God. He says to her, go in peace. It is that same peace that we can have. It is the peace that passes all understanding. And the thing is, do you have that peace today? And so as we come to the table now, consider your life, right? Do you see Jesus for who he is, the work that he did, the work that he is doing today? Have you responded to him Have you put your faith and trust in him? Do you see him as Lord and Savior over all, the way, the truth, and the life? And are you affirmed by Jesus? Are you now a child of God? See, we see through her that she truly loved God and she's displayed that love to all people. Can you say you do the same? Do you do your actions proclaim the glory of God and the grace that he has placed on your life? Um, And with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to come together to learn more about this passage, about the woman who had been forgiven of many sins, and that was a child of God who loved much in return. And I pray that we apply that to our lives and as we go throughout the world today that we show that love, that same love she had for you, to others as well. We just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.